0: Lord, you are worthy to be worshipped. We worship you because you are infinitely glorious and holy and majestic. You are holy, holy, holy. And Lord, even now as we come into your word, we want to worship you through the preaching of your word. We want your name to be lifted high. And we want to worship you through the hearing of your word. And we want to worship you through the application of your word that our eyes may be lifted to see you and be focused upon you, and that we may be changed people in the light of what your word says. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Just a passage that I want to look at just by way of introduction to our time together. So we continue our series today uh, called the Calvary Distinctives. We have looked at the first four Calvary distinctives thus far. The first one was the Calvary Bible Church is a Bible-centered church. Secondly, Calvary Bible Church is a Christ-exalting church. Thirdly, Calvary Bible Church is a God-dependent church. And fourthly, Calvary Bible Church is a love-expressing church. And today we want to look at Calvary distinctive number five. The Calvary Bible Church is a worship-motivated church. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Therefore... Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. You know you're in trouble when the Lord repeats your name, right? (laughs) A very sympathetic and gracious and tender, our Lord says, Martha, Martha. You are worried and bothered, the idea there is troubled, about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Here we have the account of our Lord Jesus visiting the home of a woman named Martha who has a sister named Mary. And as you can imagine, having our Lord, hosting our Lord and his disciples into their home is quite an exciting moment. And so you can imagine that she wants to be a good hostess. Martha is running around very busy with all the preparations to need it to host Jesus and his disciples and, and take care of all of their needs. And meanwhile, her sister Mary is so captivated by the presence of Jesus that she's seated at the Lord's feet, listening to His word. In those days, the rabbis would condemn a woman like this for sitting at the feet of a man improperly. That was seen as improper, that she would do something like this. But she doesn't care, because Jesus is there, and she is is hanging on every single one of His words. Captivated by his presence. Frustrated at her sister, Martha semi rebukes our Lord and and exhorts him to tell Mary to help her with the preparations. Perhaps if it was one of us, we would also tell Jesus, Jesus, you know, yeah, definitely Mary in this situation, she's being lazy. She's not serving you. And look at Martha, poor her. She's running around performing all of her duties and responsibilities. You should rebuke her, Lord. Look at the way that the Lord answers in verse 41. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. What was the good part that Mary had chosen? In a nutshell, Jesus was telling Martha that Mary at that moment had chosen to do the most essential, important activity of life. Mary was worshiping Jesus. Enthralled by Jesus. Captivated by Jesus. Sitting at His feet. Listening to Him. Captivated by His presence. Mary had chosen the good part to worship Jesus. And sadly... Martha, amidst all of her service, had missed worshiping Jesus from the heart. For you can be so focused, beloved, on serving even, but not have the right heart attitude of worship driving that service. Jesus was telling Martha that worship was of utmost importance. And I believe that's why Luke includes this account here in the Gospel of Luke. Worship is the most important thing that Mary and Martha could have been doing at that moment when Jesus was there. Beloved, man was created to worship. Every single man from the very beginning, his ultimate purpose for being created is that that person might worship God supremely. From the very beginning, God was to be the object of supreme devotion and adoration of all human beings born into this world. But then the fall came, right? The fall came and self-worship was introduced. Self-worship was introduced. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, though he had been so good to them, self-worship was introduced and now every single person born into this world seeks to dethrone God. And not worship Him supremely. Isn't this what Romans 1 speaks of? When Romans 1 speaks of the wrath of God revealed against all mankind. And the reason for God's judgment of mankind is that man does not honor Him as God or give thanks. Man exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and four-footed animals and creatures and so forth. Man worships and serves the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Man's problem, brothers and sisters, is that man does not worship God supremely. Man lives to worship the great idol of self. This is our core problem. We are by nature, from the time that we are that we are in the womb, we are self worshippers. And it's just a matter of time as we grow physically and emotionally and in every way for us to manifest that in various ways to different capacities. But at the end of the day, you're either a worshiper of God or you're a worship of self and that expresses itself in many different ways. And of course, God's solution was to redeem a people chosen to be His special possession who worship Him alone. God sent His Son to die for our sins so that by trusting in Christ we can be forgiven of our sins and acquitted of our guilt before God. And yes, one of the great blessings of that is that we are spared from hell. But the bigger picture, the bigger picture of redemption is that God saved a people who are to be His special possession so that they would no longer live for self-worship, but to worship God alone. The greater purpose of redemption is to restore man's ability to worship God unhindered by the estrangement and the hostility that our sin brings before ourselves and God beloved. Worship is the restored purpose of redemption. We were saved... Unto worship. Since this is the case, and it is, that the ultimate purpose for which we are saved, then I want to ask you this morning are you living your life to worship God? Genuinely and authentically. Do you desire and make it your aim? Above anything and everything in this life, and in everything that you do, to bring glory to God. For some of you, the beginning of a life of worship means turning from your sins and trusting in Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. For some of you who are unbelievers, you cannot come to the Father, but only by faith in Christ. Only as you turn from your sins and you believe in Christ can you worship God genuinely and authentically. It doesn't matter how much you come to church. It doesn't matter how many events you attend. It doesn't matter how many programs you are a part of. It doesn't matter what your life looks at externally when you come here for two or three hours at a time. If you have not given your, your life to Christ, turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ. You are not a worshiper of God. You cannot genuinely worship God unless you are saved from your sins by believing in Christ. For others of us who are believers, do you believe truly? And do you live your life? According to 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whether I eat or drink, I do it all, not some things, and keep aside in my closet those things that are precious to me, Do you do it all to the glory of God? Would people characterize you as a professing believer, as a worshiper of God? These are good questions to ask ourselves, beloved. All of us. And so, my desire this morning is to have us sort of take a litmus test this morning and to see how we are doing in this area of worship, in this utmost of priorities. And I want us to examine five principles of worship. Five principles of worship to help us evaluate individually and corporately and assess and examine how we are doing as worshipers of God. And the first principle is this. Worship is Godward focused. Worship is Godward focused. And I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Such a great text of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 6. Worship is Godward focused. It is not man-centered. And worship is the appropriate response, beloved, to the glory and the holiness of God. And here in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, we're told of the death of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a, a king who reigned over the southern kingdom for some 50 plus years More than five decades. The people had become very accustomed to King Uzziah. As you can imagine, everybody knew him. And while he reigned, the, the nation was materially prosperous for the most part. The spiritual condition, however, was completely a different story. It was very poor under him. And so with the death of this prominent king, there must have been great anguish in both Isaiah's heart and the nation. They were undoubtedly in need of great hope. It is at this time that Isaiah has a vision of God here in Isaiah six, which gives Isaiah great, great perspective more than any anything that he could have ever imagined. Look at verse one. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Here is this heavenly scene with God as the centerpiece of worship in all of his glory, in all of his awesomeness. Is that even a word? That's all right. In all of his awesomeness, in all of his majesty. He is the centerpiece of worship. And His majesty and His glory and His worth is highlighted by the activity of the heavenly hosts. In verse 2 and verse 3, Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. These are awesome, majestic creatures, the seraphim in verse 2. And yet, beloved, the activity of the seraphim is that they, being awesome and fearsome themselves, are infinitely more captivated by someone greater than themselves. One who is awesome and glorious and holy. And look at their utterances in verse three, three times they repeat the preeminent attribute of God, his holiness, holy, 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 which points to his moral perfection. But more than that, to the fact that he is like no other. He is the incomparable one. And that's what the seraphim cry out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They're so captivated by Him that they themselves, being awesome and fearsome, are totally focused upon one infinitely more glorious and holy than themselves. Not only the activity of the seraphim points to the majesty of God here, but notice the earthquakes And notice the, the, what's taking place in this setting, in this scene in heaven. Look at verse four. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled. Notice that. Imagine what that would have been like. Southern California people, how scary are earthquakes? Pretty scary, right? They're pre- Can you imagine the scene in heaven being here where there is trembling at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke? There is shaking and earthquake and smoke all around in light of what is being spoken and in light of the manifest glory and holiness of God. Awesome scene. Now notice Isaiah's response in verse 5. This is so touching. It makes me want to cry when I look at verse 5. Isaiah, in verse 5, look there. He runs up to God. He gives him a high five and a bear hug. Is that what it says in verse 5? Is that what Isaiah did? Look at verse 5. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. There's the personal confession, and there's the corporate confession as well on behalf of the people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Beloved, Isaiah responds with reverence and fear. Recognizing his utter sinfulness in the light of God's glory and his holiness, he's broken and he recognizes that he is totally unclean in the presence of God and he needs forgiveness from his sins. That is his response. By the way, this is the pathway to salvation. For any of you who are in here, who are unbelievers, who are not following Christ, that when you finally see that you don't measure in comparison to the holiness and the glory of God, and that you need cleansing from your sins in light of His glory, you are an utter sinner in desperate need of salvation from your sins. You cry out to God to clean you and to forgive you, and He will. He will. And you realize that He's provided a Son, a Savior, Jesus Christ, who can forgive you, by which whom you can be forgiven of your sins. If you believe in him. Now, God cleanses Isaiah, doesn't he, in verse 6? Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. God cleanses Isaiah. There is forgiveness granted to him. In the light of his recognition that in the presence of God he is utterly undone were it not for the grace and the mercy of God. And then notice in verse 8, having seen the glory of God and having been cleansed and forgiven, Isaiah was ready to serve the Lord by being his messenger to a wicked people who soon would experience the judgment of God. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. He's ready to serve the Lord and be commissioned as messenger to the nation. Beloved, Isaiah saw God for who He is. And in response to God's glory and holiness... He, was, he, he dropped with fear and awesome trembling reverence before Him. This is what should happen to us even as believers. The more we grow in our knowledge of God and we see Him for who He is, the more we should fear and reverence Him, worshiping Him for who He is. Knowledge of God, beloved, fuels and motivates our worship of God, does it not? And what is worship? Worship. It is ascribing worthiness to someone. In the Bible, it has to do with ascribing worth to God, of affirming and celebrating God's supreme value, of granting honor to God who is infinitely worthy of our honor, praise, and adoration. So worship is Godward, focused. Focused. And that the more you see and you behold the beauty of God, the more that you and I should be propelled to adore Him and to worship Him. Conversely, if you and I, in light of the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God, if we do not utter worship to the Lord, if we do not live to worship the Lord, it is sin. It is sin not to worship God at its very core, and that manifests itself in many different ways. John Piper puts it like this, quote, What is sin? The glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The promises of God not believed. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is the essence of sin." quote. In short, you and I not worshiping God in the light of who He is with our lives and with our praises is sin, beloved. It is sin. Worship is Godward focused. When we behold the beauty of God, then we know that there is nothing greater than living our lives for Him. Glorifying Him, adoring Him, praising Him, walking in loving obedience to Him who has given His Son for those of us who have believed in Christ. Listen, worship is not about us, worship is not man centered. This is very important. Worship is about Him. For often, especially in our circles, in our entertainment and consumer-driven culture, we tend to think that worship is for us. We come on Sunday mornings or other corporate gatherings and we are armed with a spectator type of mentality. We are here as passive spectators rather than active participants who are here to worship God. We sit back, critiquing everything that we see up front. Music, announcements, giving, you name it. That is many times our attitude as we come in, beloved. Worship is not about you. Worship is not about me. Worship is about God. We are here to worship God. Amen? That's why we're here. Nobody who comes on this platform is here to perform for you, beloved. Listen, I love each and every one of you, and I love you corporately, but I'm not here to preach the Word of God every Sunday morning to perform for you. Would you have it any other way? Yes or no? No. I am here by the Word of God, pointing you to the Holy Scriptures, to usher you into the presence of God, us together, to behold the glory of God as revealed in His Word, so that we together may walk in loving obedience to Him and worship Him. That's why there's the preaching of the Word of God. Worship is not for us, beloved. Yes, things should be done with excellence. Absolutely. But not for your approval and not for my approval. We are here to serve God. We are here to lead in the worship of God. And listen, God is the audience, not you or I. Frankly, you and I are actually the ones on the platform. And God is the audience. And He's watching your heart to see if you're actually genuinely coming in on a Sunday morning, worshiping Him sincerely in spirit and in truth. So God is the audience. You and I, the worshipers, are on the platform. And God is looking for genuine worship from you and I. So we need to be careful. Worship is not man-centered. Worship is Godward focused. It's all about Him. Him. In light of His glory and His holiness. Secondly, worship is personal. Worship is personal. And it is so because you individually, personally were redeemed by God to worship. Each of us individually have a personal relationship with the living God by faith in Christ. If you have put your faith in Christ... And worship should be a, a way of life for us as individual believers. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12 to see this. Romans chapter 12. After 11 chapters in the book of Romans of of rehearsing and communicating the beauties of the, of the mercies of God and the grace of God in the gospel of Christ. Now Paul is getting ready to exhort them in chapter 12 and verse 1. How should they then live? in the light of them having been saved by God. Verse 1 of Romans 12, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice, you can't miss the sacrifice type of language, right? It brings back to mind the Old Testament sacrificial system by which the Israelites would bring an unblemished animal to make payment for their sins. And we know that in the gospel, of course, Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. There's no need for those continual sacrifices anymore. And now in light of the fact that Christ has come as a sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of those who believe in Him, We are to live as a living sacrifice. No longer living for ourselves. Living for God. Serving God. Worshipping God. The way of the Christian. The way of the believer is a life of self-sacrificial service and worship. It is a way of life for you who have been redeemed from so much. Amen? That is the way that we ought to live our lives. Worship is personal. In that we are living sacrifices. In the light of the fact that God has displayed His grace and His mercy toward us in Christ. But you know what we are as well? Not just living sacrifices, but we are human temples of the Holy Spirit. Think about that one. That can be said of you as an individual because the Spirit of God has permanently come to indwell you as a believer. But it can also be said of us as a corporate body. Right? In that we are one in Christ. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are essentially, beloved, walking houses of worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 says this. Listen. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And here's the reason why we should flee immorality. The idea there is pornea, any form, immorality in any shape. Why should we flee that? He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple, that is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body." You know what believers are? We are walking houses of worship. And we should conduct ourselves that way. Worship should flow from our lives and words, beloved, and all that we do. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, "Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God." All of it. In everything that you do, even in the most menial mundane tasks like eating and drinking, We are called to let our light shine in such a way that people may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen? Worship is personal. It's the way of life for the believer. We are living sacrifices. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, worship is to be communal. Worship is to be communal. Not only is worship Godward focused, it is personal, but worship is to be communal. And this one in particular hits us hard living as Christians in America, does it not? In America, where generally the culture is privatism, it is about individualism that is heralded. The Lone Ranger guy is the big dog on campus, right? Because he doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need anybody. He's self-sufficient. Beloved, listen. We may be Christians living in America. But we are not to operate in accordance with the culture of America. Amen? We are not American, emphasis on American, American Christians. So that we adopt the privatized, individualistic culture of our nation. No. Believers have been redeemed, have been saved unto or to be part of a community of believers. That is what we are to be about. So worship is personal, but it is also communal. We were not called to, to this sort of monastic lifestyle, beloved, of seclusion and, and secrecy away from others. You and I were redeemed to be a part of a worshiping community, a temple, a building, a church, a body. All of those metaphors point to the fact that we are organically connected with one another as followers of Christ. We are one in Christ. First Peter chapter 2, our brother Jim Stone read the, the previous verses earlier. But listen to First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, describing Peter writing to these believers about who they are now, their identity. And he says in First Peter 2, 9, But you, you, plural pronoun, you collectively are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is not just speaking to individuals there, though, though certainly each and every one of them were responsible to respond in obedience to what he's writing but he's writing to them collectively as a group of people, a community of saved individuals whose identity is no longer in their individualism, but in the fact that they are one in Christ, one holy nation set apart for the glory of God. You know what? That's why when we come together on Sunday mornings for corporate worship, beloved, oh, we should marvel and we should be astounded at the privilege that we have to be sitting here as redeemed sinners corporately with people of every tongue, nation, and tribe. Amen? What a blessing and a privilege, because God has redeemed you personally, individually, so that you would be a part of a corporate body of people who are also redeemed, who have also placed their faith in Christ. What a blessing and a privilege, because you know what? This right here is a microcosm of what's going to happen in heaven forever and ever and ever, and if you don't enjoy it now, or working to enjoy it in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, then I feel really sorry for you, or maybe you won't be there with us. Amen? That's why worship needs to be a priority, beloved. It must be cherished by us. We must cherish it. I find it so amazing, you know, when I observe or hear Christians living so with, the, with a mindset so individualistic. When I hear of Christians who don't think that gathering with the body is not only essential but critical to their very spiritual vitality, I'm amazed. How do you say that you're a Christian, that you have a relationship with God by faith in Christ, and yet you neglect the bride of Christ, the church? How do you say that? How is that consistent? One pastor, speaking of the crucial importance of the church to the life of the professing Christian, writes this, quote, When I say that the church is essential and critical... I mean essential and critical the way that a nursing mother's milk is essential and critical to the health of a newborn baby. When I say the church is essential and critical, I mean the church is essential and critical the way healthy kidneys are essential to the life of a human being. When I say the church is essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way that trust is essential and critical to a healthy marriage. You simply cannot have a healthy marriage without it. End quote. Beloved, the church and the corporate gathering of God's people is essential and critical to your life as a believer. Don't fool yourself thinking that you can live individualistically. And that is God-glorifying worship. It isn't. It is amazing to me. Equally, the, the amazing statistics of believers. I was looking at some of these statistics the other day of believers who don't make it their priority anymore to attend Sunday morning worship. And I get it, you know, with our technology now, there are elderly saints who are not able to do that anymore, so they need to stay home and they need to worship from home, and that's okay. That is an exception. And some of us, when there is sickness or sickness in our homes, we understand that. I'm talking about the, the flat-out, blatant, outright neglect of corporate worship, making excuses that at the end of the day are no excuse at all, Beloved. They only expose and reveal our arrogance and our pride thinking that we can make it without others. You've heard the story, haven't you? Of the pastor who visited one member of of his church who was neglecting corporate worship, the church. And the man was sitting in his backyard. He's a professing believer. Looking at the red hot coals in his barbecue grill on a, on a cold day, and the pastor shows up, and no matter how much the pastor seemed to be encouraging this guy, he would not, he was just wasn't getting through to the guy. So the pastor then takes a set of tongs and starts removing each red hot coal from the barbecue grill, one by one, separating them and isolating them. And on a cold night, what happened to those red hot coals? They became cold as ice, right? They became cold as ice. And the pastor then looked at the man and said to him, This is what happens to you when you neglect the gathering of believers. This is what happens to you. And beloved, this is what happens to us when we neglect corporate worship together. Whether you realize it or not, you are imperceptibly growing cold, callous, indifferent to the Lord and to other believers around you. Listen to me, it is arrogant and proud to have the attitude that Sunday mornings or other gatherings are times that are negotiable, that you can take them or leave them. That is the the root of that is pride and arrogance on our part. If this is your attitude consistently as a pattern of your life, that you don't need the church of God, that you can neglect the bride of Christ, what makes you think that you're a Christian? What makes you think that you belong to God? People that love God want to be around his people. People that love God want to be around other sinners saved by grace as well. Amidst our struggles, amidst our difficulties. And that's where forgiveness and confession and reconciliation and peace with one another comes in. So that we won't neglect the gathering corporately with one another. You need other believers, beloved. I need you. I need you. You need me. Make it a priority to worship with your fellow brothers and sisters. And may I say this, especially the main event of the week. What is the main event of the week for us as a church? Sunday morning worship. Amen? This is a unique main event. Do you do everything you can to prepare your heart? To prepare your attitude for Sunday morning corporate worship. Is it a priority to you? Is it a priority? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And how is this going to happen? How are we going to stimulate one another to love and good deeds? This is why he says the next thing not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Corporate worship is valuable, worship is communal, beloved. Fourthly, worship is to be expressed. Worship is to be expressed. Not only is worship Godward-focused, it's personal, it's communal. Worship, fourthly, is to be expressed. The proper response to God's glory is worship. And can I say this? That's not some ambiguous activity. Worship is shown in our lives. The way that we speak and the way that we... That we live and the way that we even sing on Sunday mornings and in other gatherings, it should be shown, beloved, expressed in our praises and adoration. This is what the psalmists mean by ascribing glory to God, by the way. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, say the psalmists. We ascribe glory to God not because He needs us to add glory to Him. God is, listen, inherently glorious. He's glorious in Himself. No one adds or subtracts glory from God. No one gives God credentials or some promotion so that He could be honored in our eyes as human beings need promotions and credentials so that we may honor them. We add nothing to the glory of God. We cannot add or subtract to who He is. He is inherently glorious, and this is precisely why He alone deserves glory from us. Amen. Ascribed glory, and there are so many passages in Scripture we can read. Many of them here, but listen to some of these. Okay, First Chronicles chapter sixteen and verse twenty-nine ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name bring an offering and come before him worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness psalm 29 and verse 1 ascribe to the Lord O sons of the mighty ascribe to the Lord glory and strength ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name worship the Lord in holy array Psalm 96 verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds amongst the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens... Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Beloved, to worship God is to do that exact thing as well. To speak and express His infinite worth with our lives and with our lips. That would include when we sing together corporately, especially, that there would be exuberant and celebratory praise in the light of His greatness and His holiness and His glory. Amen? That's the way that we ought to respond. It's the response of a, of a redeemed, thankful heart that is beholding the beauty of God and all of His glory. Day by day. And the psalmist can't help but to ascribe glory to the Lord with heartfelt expressions of praise and honor and adoration. The psalter is full of songs that were sung as a community, as a nation, in response to God's revealed and inherent glory. They were expressions of the nation to God for who He is and what He had done. But Kempis, can I sing and praise God even if I'm hurting right now? Even if I'm going through trials, even if I am suffering, the answer that the psalmists would give us is what? Yes. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because even in their pain and their deep anguish and suffering, these psalmists still expressed dependence upon God. They were celebratory. They were asking, petitioning Him for deliverance from their enemies, even in the midst, beloved, of their suffering when they wrote. They were people who tried to live well under their trials and still gave glory to God, adored Him, and praised Him. We can too, in the power of the Spirit of God, by the grace that God supplies. And yet for many of us, our expressions are anything but celebratory. They are but a whisper. It seems that for most of us, or some of us at least, we are more concerned about expressing to others how great we are instead of praising God for how great He is. And we do that in subtle ways or we do that in very explicit ways. The reality of it is is we are too proud, beloved, and think too highly of ourselves, and we live to toot our own horn for one reason or another. Our human accomplishments, our human achievements, our gifts, our abilities, and not God. Worship is to be expressed to God. It needs to be all about God to other people as well, beloved, in the way that we communicate. Everything that you have comes to you from God. You and I deserve nothing. God has given us everything. So we have no right to boast in self. Amen? We boast in God. We point people to His greatness. Not point people to ourselves, our accomplishments. Our gifts, our abilities, that at the end of the day mean nothing except expose our utter arrogance and pride and self-preoccupation. Instead of point to the glory of God. I exhort you and I encourage you, beloved. Turn every single accomplishment, every ability that you have into an opportunity for boasting in God. In pointing to His glory. To see God worshipped. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. All for His glory. So worship is Godward focused. Personal. Communal. It is to be expressed even in our praises. And fifth, worship is to be sincere. Worship is to be sincere. Worship is to be genuine From the heart, if it is true worship, and we don't have time to go extensively into John 4, but do you remember the discussion that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman when he exposed her sin? And then he also used that as an opportunity to teach her something about genuine worship. And do you remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman about the true worshiper? John 4.24 says, Jesus said to her, God is spirit, And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. He told her, must worship in spirit and truth. It is of utmost necessity that our worship be genuine. And what did He mean by in spirit? But that it must come from the inner person. It must be genuine. It was no longer about a geographical place or location devoid of heart. It had to be genuine. Genuine. From the heart, sincere. Stephen Charnock writes this, Without the heart, it is no worship at all. It is a stage play, an acting part without being that person really which is acted by us. A hypocrite in the notion of the word is a stage player. We may truly be set to worship God, though we may lack perfection, but we cannot be set to worship Him if we lack sincerity. Listen to that last part. We may truly be set to worship God, though we may lack perfection, but we cannot be set to worship Him if we lack sincerity. What does he mean? That though our worship here on earth will be imperfect, we can still worship God in sincerity. But devoid of heart is no worship at all. Externalism. Devoid of heart is no worship, beloved. And we can pretend with one another But we cannot pretend with God. He sees right into our hearts and our motives and our attitudes, right? If we are truly worshiping from the heart. But Jesus also said to the Samaritan woman that those who worship God must do so in spirit, but also in truth. And where do we find truth? God's word is truth. It shouldn't surprise us that in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, when Paul is writing to the Colossian believers, he starts talking about uh, singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. But right before that, he says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How do we get to the point where we are propelled to worship God? It is when we allow the Word of Christ to make its its home in our hearts, beloved. When our, our minds and our hearts are saturated with the truth of God's Word, we are driven to worship God. John MacArthur writes this, quote, Worship is a response to revealed truth about God. For worship engages both the mind and the heart, both the intellect and the emotions. The Word of God regulates our worship. So to worship God in truth means that God must be worshipped for who the Bible reveals Him to be. If worship is to be sincere, then it must be done in spirit. From the heart and in truth, in accordance with God's word and who He is, beloved. Worship is to be sincere, it is to be genuine from the heart. Listen, our desire as a church, and our desire as your leaders, and our prayer is that as we move into the future, we would be all the more, beloved, a worshiping community of believers. That we would be a worshiping church. And that in all that we strive to do, God's glory and His infinite worth would be magnified. Amen? It's the kind of people that we want to be. It's the kind of church that we want to be. And this is both a personal and a corporate commitment on our part. Worship is a Godward-focused activity. It is personal. It is communal. It is to be expressed, seen visibly in response to the glory and the majesty of God, and it is to be sincere in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together, and then our brother Tim Adams is going to come on up. Our Father, O oh Lord, You are worthy to be worshipped. Lord, we worship You with our words, with our lives, in our obedience to You. You who have given so much for us. You gave Your Son to die on the cross for our sins, for those of us who would believe in your Son. And I pray that, Lord, we may be motivated to worship you in light of that great redemption. I pray that, Lord, we might be a church that is a worshiping church. I pray that we may be a people who worship you in our obedience and in our pursuit of holiness, in our rejection of a hostile culture against you. Lord, all the more, Make us a people who adore you and praise you. That the testimony of our lives would speak volumes about our high view of you. In Jesus' name, amen.